One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Larry McAllister into the middle. Liverpool win it with a golden goal. It's 5-4. Welcome to the Book Club on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Kate Mason. I'm Jim Campbell. And today we're with a Champions League winner with 10 other major trophies to his name. A Liverpool legend who played over 700 games for his club, the second most of any player in the club's history. A one-club man and an England international. And if it was just his playing career he had to tell us about, it'd be worth having a chat with this one. But after retirement, the versatile defender developed a new talent, that of communicating football to us. When I press play now, this is 15 seconds into the game. This is right from the kickoff. The ball now comes across, Mo Salah tries to press, and this is what I talk about is positional play. Normally then you'd look and think, you stop it there, and I think, where's the right back? 
As a pundit, Jamie Carragher professionalised football analysis, bringing in a new era of football understanding through Sky's Monday Night Football and setting the pace for the more demanding modern football fan. His book, The Greatest Games, builds on this version of his work. He speaks with some of the greatest names in football to support his tactical analysis of important games in a book that at times reads like a university text on modern football in the best possible way. And we're delighted to have Jamie Carragher in the Ramble studio today to talk to us about his book, The Greatest Games. Jamie, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. I didn't want you to stop then. (laughs) (laughs) No, thanks for having me. Oh, no, it's great. We can't wait to hear talk about this. And and we were thinking, reading it through, we know obviously you did a autobiography, what, over 10 years ago now. But we thought it was really interesting that you chose to do this. So it's like an analysis of 11 key games that you've really enjoyed in your career and also just within football. Why was this the book that you wanted to write now? Well, as you said, I've done my autobiography. I, I regret doing it at the time I did. I wish I'd have waited to the end of my career to obviously speak about the last few years and how that went. But I don't think an autobiography is something I will revisit uh, anytime soon. So... I've always been fascinated by football books, uh, read a lot of them over the years. Uh, Michael Cox had a couple of, of books out that I, I really enjoyed. I'm reading a, a Barcelona book now by Simon Cooper that I'm halfway through. I've got an Arrigo Sacchi book on the uh, the immortals of the late 80s, AC Milan. That will be next. So I, it, I've always been not so much fascinated by them, but you know, enjoyed reading them and thought if I did another book, I'd love to do uh, a football book. And there was one book that was called The Italian Job with, I think, Marcotti and Gianluca Vialli did, Gabriel Marcotti and Gianluca Vialli, and, and speaking about the differences between Italian football and English football. So I always wanted to be involved in a football book like that where I could talk about, as I have done in this, tactics, games, whatever it may be, and it, rather than it being just about myself. Good idea. I mean, that's it's quite a refreshing thing to hear yeah. when we're talking about these kind of books. And it was during lockdown as well, so I guess people couldn't run from you if you wanted to talk to them. Yes, it was. It was perfect timing, uh, in in some ways, in that we, we were going through it and trying to get hold of people. There was no way anyone could tell me they couldn't uh, they couldn't answer a phone <laughs> or an email because obviously we were all stuck in the house. And uh, I, I got through a lot of the interviews uh, through that time. So. The thread of the book is we've got 11 games, different games. So you're trying to get the viewpoint of two or three players from each team within that book, really. So And, and because the, the, a lot of these games are, are 20, 30 years old, you're speaking to sort of former legends or even heroes of mine. The, uh, the, you know, the Everton team growing up, the Liverpool team of the late 80s, trying to get some foreign players involved. I mean, I spoke to Hayne and Crespo which is really interesting on the obviously the Istanbul game. But it's always nice, I think, to to get the the other view. Sometimes you, you, you have your own thoughts of how a game's went, but it's, it's nice to get different points of view on, uh, on the different games from uh, both sides of the camp. It's interesting how... I, I think most people probably never watch a game back, realistically. Fans, certainly. I imagine players, you analyse your own performances, but I'm, I'm sure not even all players do that. But So I, there's a sense that like a lot of these games surprise you, actually, in that the narrative is very, very... that, that has gone around the game is very, very different from what happened. That seems like pretty much, pretty much every game, there is some element of that. So um, it's interesting to get that insight into it. And it's also really, really interesting to get 
like I feel like I understand football a bit better having read this book and seen sort of how much goes into each each phase of play almost. And I'm really interested in how how that happens on the pitch. Like, are you reading the game like that when you play? Are all these different things going through your head? Because football looks like chaos when you watch it on TV, but obviously we know it isn't, especially at the top level. So is this an accurate depiction of what it's like to, to, to play in a game as well? Are you thinking that quickly? Is that is that what it's like at the top level? I mean, I... I... That was my greatest strength on a football pitch in terms of my understanding of the game because I I didn't have anything that stood out that was that was outstanding. I would say you know someone might be lightning quick or a great passer of the ball or score goals whatever it could be. I don't think I ever stand out. Something will say Jamie Carragher was amazing at this. That what that wasn't me as a footballer. I, I was I was okay at most things, uh, but what made me the player I, I was was. Uh, what was between me is basically in, in terms of reading the game, understanding the game, also being very focused, very aggressive. You know, every game was a cup final for me. So that's why I think I can do this book. This is why I can do punditry at the moment on maybe mm. Monday Night Football. But it's very difficult as a player to change a complete game when it's going on. You can, you can realise what's going on. But it's very difficult for me to then stop Steven Gerrard doing what he's doing. You can speak and talk and organise, or you might think, we're not playing well today. It's not quite happening. You try and obviously improve the performance by organisation, but it might be a case where, okay, if we're not doing this, we need to do this. And that, that was my sort of role, certainly under Rafa Benitez with Liverpool, where I was, I was, was centre-back, so I was almost in charge of the back four and people in front of me in organisation. So it might be a case of, we need to drop off 10 yards, we need to push up or we need to slow the game down or, or these type of things, uh, what I'm talking about in a book when you get tactical, really. But it's, it's difficult when it's, there's 22 players on a pitch and you, you almost have to go with the flow, but how can you make the best version of this, of you know, the way the game's going? You talk about Rafa Benitez very in a very positive light, of course, and you said he he's the university professor who made me the player that I was, and and he presented you with a particular DVD, didn't he? Do you remember about this of the AC Milan back line? Was that a common thing to do? Was that uh, in how how did that inspire you? No, I don't think it, it was a common thing. It, it, I don't think it was you know those DVDs given out to the rest of of the. Of the squad, but I think a guy I spoke to a couple of weeks ago, Rigo Saki. I went to speak to him. He, he's like a, just a guy. Yeah, just, just a guy yeah, was just, hanging out with a few yeah. weeks <laughs> in, in his home. He looked after us, and we, we were speaking about his new book that's coming out, The Immortals. And uh, he is almost like a reference point for so many coaches. Uh, Rafa Benitez being one, Jurgen Klopp as well. He actually mentioned that uh, Thomas Tuchel had been out to see him a couple of weeks ago. So he's almost like the, this guy everyone needs to speak to about the way that the modern game is played. And of that, you know, being really compact as a, as a team from back to front, pushing up. They obviously the offside rules were different then, but if you actually watch Liverpool now, how high they get up the pitch, it is like watching Barese pushing up that at AC Milan back four, that famous uh, back four. So that's what it was about. This is what we're trying to do. This is Rafa Benitez saying we're trying to do this. So when we're on the training pitch, this is where we want to get to. Now, Jamie Carragher will never get to Franco Barese. I don't think anyone ever will. <laughs> And the fact there's a there's a cup across. Yeah, Franco Baresi mug in the yeah, studio number now. Number six, I have to adore that man. And uh, but that was what we were, we, were, we were trying to get to. And I think a lot of teams see that team. I think Pep's Barcelona team. I think the the Dutch team of the seventies. And this is what Arrigo Saki was talking about. There was those were the three teams that almost changed football. Mm. 
and and, and set in place a you know a philosophy every sort of twenty twenty five years where the game moves on a little bit. Uh, and I think that's what those DVDs were about. This is this is utopia. This is where we're trying to get to, yeah. basically. So when you say, sorry, to just clarify, um, Jim, I know you wanted to comment. Uh, you're saying Rafa Benitez did that for you specifically, but he might not have done it because he saw you with that kind of mind or you were that kind of player who would react well to that kind of process. Yeah, yeah I think he knew that I love football, understood football. So I could understand what Rafa was asking the team to do and certain players now certain players don't understand it but they have different qualities and that's yeah. what I was trying to explain before I didn't have an outstanding technical or physical quality apparently modesty is like one of them but yeah okay go yeah. <laughs> but I, I had a good understanding of the game I watched a lot of football I I mean some of the players you, you would not believe they probably wouldn't know that AC Milan team or know who Brazy was that's, that's just the way football is but I was obviously well aware could understand right that's a trigger point we need to push out when this happens or we need to drop off when this happens so that was just part of, of my education. Mm. And then he knew when I went onto the pitch in that situation, I could organise people to push up, to drop off, to do whatever he felt was needed. That's really interesting to me because I guess that answers my earlier question, which is that, you know, do players think in this much depth in the pit, on the pitch? And I guess it's like some of you do. And then you take care of the rest almost. So you're organising on the pitch and making sure the team just functions. Yeah, I, I think that, w- that was my role under, under, under Rafa, certainly because I was in the centre of defence. I, I wasn't on the level of other centre-backs in England in terms of uh, John Terry, Real Ferdinand, shall we say. Just just looking at them physically, you know, probably three or four inches taller than me, quicker than me, more powerful. So I had to sort of be someone who, who tried to play, play with the brain, if you like, in terms of, of organisation. doesn't always work, uh, <laughs> there's no doubt. But yeah, Rafa Benitez was very much about the details of, you know, tactically, really, how you stop the opposition, how you can... What are their weaknesses that we can exploit? And not every player would understand what was needed. They'd just go out and play their own game. Mm. So you need certain players who have different qualities on the pitch. Because you spend all this time thinking about the game and as you've pointed out in a way that quite often players don't. I don't know how it makes you feel sometimes when I suppose there's different players in the game, right? But sometimes the guys will be like, oh no, I've never even I've never heard of Jimmy Carragher or whatever, you know, some of these yeah, young yeah. guys, they, they haven't even watched stuff from a few years back, let alone. Um, but is that why... I think you found it dif- fairly difficult to finish playing and then make that transition. Is that is did this offer you some kind of solace within that doing punditry? I mean, yeah, I mean, I I I always felt I would be a coach. I would all, I always felt I'd be involved in football. I love football. I think about it, you know, twenty four seven. Watch a lot of games, and yeah, I always knew I'd be involved in the game. And I think everyone in the dressing room felt I would be a coach or a manager. You know, Stevie's gone on to do that now really well at, at Rangers. But I think, even if you'd ask Stevie, he would say, I'm a, a lot more obsessed with football than he is. And, and could speak about an AC Milan team maybe more than he could, or pass football, or players, or systems, or managers. And just because you like that doesn't necessarily mean you should be a coach or a manager. You know, it, there's a lot of different things that go into, you know, that role, coaching and managing. But the later I got into my career, the more I like the idea of punditry. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, I used to watch shows when I was a player and just think it was average, you know, in terms of what people were talking about or how how deep they were going. And the into... great thing about what you did, actually, was what I was trying to get across at the top, is that by doing it so much better, it improved everything else as well. Because like, I think match of the day wouldn't be the way it is now yeah. if it hadn't been for what you guys were doing. Well, listen, thank you. I don't know what to say to that. Thank you. I'm not sure uh, Gary Lineker will be too happy when he listens. <laughs> fight, fight, <laughs> but, uh, fight. 
But no, I mean, that's not to say I'm better than anyone else. I mean, I, I watch other shows to see what they're doing now and say, well, can we do better than that? Well, I don't agree with that. Or that was really good. Could could we spin that or could we do something different? So I, I, I've always watched all the other TV shows. But listen, it's like anything in life. Things move on, they get better. Most things, I would say, get better with more detail. I think fans now, uh, even what users are doing, the football ramble, talking about football, I think with social media now, I think the analysis of football in terms of fans talking about their own clubs and, and going really deep and, and looking at systems. And I think the level of of analysis now is 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 on a completely different level to where it was when I was playing. And, you know, it was probably just match of the day, a little bit of, of Monday Night Football with Andy Gray at the time, which I, I really enjoyed. And, uh, yeah, we've tried to push it on. But listen, I'm sure in 10 years' time or 20 years' time, someone else will have pushed it on and, I, you know, it, it keeps going. Hopefully that's me. <laughs> <laughs> so with with that in mind, you've got the whole of football to look over, eventually, <laughs> to talk about your, your favourite, um, you know, your, your favourite games within it. How did you how did you get down to the 11? Was there anything that just missed out or was, was it a fairly easy process? It was basically, I wanted to do games that when I, I didn't want to go further back than sort of when I, I you know, it's your living memory, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was the first football team I can remember as a kid? Everton, 84-85. Winning the league, winning the European Cup and his cup, getting to the FA Cup final. That's my first season as a fan. Everton's most famous game is, is uh, Bayern Bayern Munich, Munich at home. So do, you do that and almost watching the 90 minutes because a narrative comes out of games. And that's a big thing for me in punditry that, Sometimes this message comes out from a game, but when you watch it back, it's not true. Mm. It doesn't happen. So that's the things that sort of get me going in punditry. Like, for, for instance, I did Monday Night Football on Monday, obviously, and uh, there was this sort of narrative coming out after Man United played Spurs that they played counter-attack and they can't press high with Cristiano Ronaldo. And I watched the game back and it just didn't happen. Mm. <laughs> they pressed high. <laughs> so... I did that analysis and maybe you're going against the grain and that's sometimes when you watch the games back in the book, uh, it, it's when, when people talk about these games with rose-tinted spectacles, it's not the same. So that's what I was trying to almost do within these games. And also, don't forget, these games didn't have the analysis of what we've got now mm. uh, and that's what I was trying to put on. So it was a case of those type of games. I didn't want it to come across as a Liverpool book, but I think most people go, Jamie Carragher, the greatest games, this will just be... Liverpool game, so we put different sort of titles on the front of, of the It is the quite games. red, the cover, I would say. Yes. <laughs> and it was, you know, Arsenal, I mean, the Liverpool 89 uh, Arsenal game. Now, that for me is an Arsenal game, no Liverpool in it, that's an Arsenal story. Yeah. Uh, we've done the, the Champions League final for Manchester United. So really big, iconic games from trying to do different clubs, yeah. really. But... Obviously, there was more Liverpool in there because there's going to be more Liverpool fans who buy the book, obviously, with my name on it. Should we dig into Istanbul a little bit then? Yeah. Uh, on that note. Let's do it. Um, yeah, it was so that's, so that's the final game in the book, which presumably it always was going to be. It just makes yes. perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it had to go in there, didn't it? I think anyone doing that book, even if it wasn't me and, and called the book The Greatest Games, I think Istanbul would sneak in. 
yeah. more than sneaking. Can you talk to us about conducting the interviews uh, for that chapter? Yeah, I was really interested in it. Such well. an interesting dynamic for you to like rock up <laughs> to see Anna <laughs> Crespo or whoever and be like, all right, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? However many years ago, 16 years ago. What was that like? It was, I mean, he, he wasn't initially the first one I was thinking of, but you're thinking, who can you get hold of of AC, AC Milan? Uh, and I'm just trying to, I can't remember how we got hold of him. Who gave me a number for I think it was a journalist. Give me a number for him. Was it Graham Hunter or Gabriel Marcotti? Someone like that got a, a number for him, but he was brilliant. And uh, I think in some ways it was interesting talking to him because he probably felt it more than anyone because he was about to be the hero for yeah. AC Milan after his first half performance and, and the goals he got. You know, it was supposed to be this game for Shevchenko to, to win the cup again for AC Milan after that penalty he got in 2003 Oof. in the shootout at uh, our Old Trafford against Juventus. But... Crespo upstaged him. He's only on loan. He's still a Chelsea player. We'd knocked Chelsea out in the semi-final. And uh, the thing I loved what he said was uh, he had to watch Steven Gerrard lift the cup. Yeah. Because he couldn't quite believe it was happening. He thought it was still a dream. He, you know, they've gone in that dressing room at halftime, 3-0. He's, he's got a couple of goals. And yeah, he was brilliant. And he was really open because, I mean, speaking about that game must be so difficult for, for anyone associated to AC Milan. Mm. I think... I think Crespo had left by the time a couple of years later when it was the same final with a different result, wasn't it? So I think yeah, that, must make, it, side, yeah. that must make it easier for Milan that that went on. It's funny, it's probably a British bias, but that one just seems like a run-of-the-mill Champions League final. Yeah, you don't think about that. it in the same way because it's less <laughs> drama. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting you, the way you talk about the tactics in the first half of that game. Where essentially, Rafa Benitez kind of switched them around a lot back to your kind of attacking qualities. Um, you say Alex Ferguson did the same against Barcelona in 2009 and 2011, which seems to be the case. We've seen Pep Guardiola do this all the time when he gets to like the, the final stages and he'll like play Edison up front or whatever. It just like completely, <laughs> everything seems to go out the window. Like that seems so common to me. It's like, do even managers turn, turn into like daydreaming football fans when it comes to a final? Because it seems to be a really consistent thing where managers just like drop the defensive side of their team for finals. It's mad. I think I think it's just managers overthinking things and almost How can this be? Why no, are they it's... aiming off for that by this point? Everyone know, knows. Know. And someone not mentioned to Pep Guardiola that he overthinks yeah. stuff. I know it's, just, it's insane. The, this game is that big. And I don't know if there's something in managers, and I think it probably is the case. The guy opposite me is obviously a top manager. The fact he's at this stage, I'm gonna to have to think him. I'm, mm. going to, I'm going to show I'm better than him. I'm going to show I'm cleverer than him. You know, and, and Rafa Benitez, as a manager, is, is paranoid about the opposition or the other team knowing his team. Mm. Paranoid about it. So he'd never give us the team. So we would never know the team until two hours before the game. Not because he didn't want to work on things, as he did work on things, but he would never say, right, boys, two days before the game, this is the 11 we're playing, this is what we want to do, and we're going to do this, because he always felt someone would tell an agent, someone would find out. So that was always a big paranoia of his, really. So I think that at times he would play teams where he'd give the team two hours before and you'd all be looking at each other thinking, what the fuck's that, that supposed? You know, not just that game, but, you know, different games through the league, maybe three or four times a season. You think, wow, just throw a three in at the back, three at the back in or something, you know, just from nowhere. Uh, but you, as a player, you didn't know too much about it, really. He'd, he'd work on things, but he keeps swapping players and training and keep people guessing. But when he picked that team in... Uh, Two hours before the game in Istanbul, it was it was a shock. That's bizarre to think of. 
Because even just the fact of, well, maybe this is the Spurs, the Manchester United game the other week. Um, the idea, were you talking about it? I can't remember. Anyway, the idea that that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer picks, a change, you know, changes the formation. And so they would only have had a little while to work on it, maybe two or three times. And so Spurs should have attacked them and because they weren't ready to play it. But it sounds like that was the case every bloody week for this Rafa Benito side. Yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't say we changed every week. We, we, we always have played like a 4-2-3-1. Sure, yeah, no, no, you're right. But we, we wouldn't necessarily know who was going to be in those positions. Now, I mean, seven or eight players always play every week when they're fit, you know, for, for any team. There's always three or four positions that are up for grabs. But in terms of what we did on that, day Harry Kuehl came from nowhere to play so we didn't play a completely different system but Didi Man not playing Harry Kuehl that was like the big one where it was like wow and that was mm. almost even though we were shocked Rafa would be thinking well okay they may be a little bit surprised but imagine how surprised they're going to be you know almost that type happy of, surprised yeah. though as it yeah, turned yeah, out yeah, unfortunately yeah. and then her man comes on and, and yeah, that yeah. changes things it's actually it's a, it's nice to get a get a reminder of what a good player Didi Hammond was actually there's a few yeah, yeah. there's a few moments of love for, for people that maybe deserve it a bit more in the book Steve McManaman's another one brilliant yeah, player yeah. we all know he's a brilliant player but I still don't think it's said enough George Graham as well which might be my, my own Arsenal bias but um, I'm getting slightly off topic there but like with Istanbul it's better to have won it the way you won it right oh, it must have been so stressful by half time but the, I can't even imagine what that must have been like at full time like it's just we've never seen anything like I it I mean what you can remember on a football pitch is, yet yeah, you're playing, you're in the game, but you, you never have a moment to actually stop and talk to each, each other and think, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> you know, so yeah. we've only ever been together as a whole group a half time and then back in the dressing room a full time when you're actually sat in there and you look at each other. So you can imagine what you've, you're going through at half time, everyone look at each other, head and hands. And then probably about an hour later, hour and a half later, after all the celebrating, I'll say, you sit back down and you think, we were in here a couple of hours ago. Yeah. How has this happened? It's yeah. just like a freak. It, it was a freak. It was, it's just, you know, six minutes of madness. And if you take those six minutes out, as I say in the book, the 120 minutes of football that we played for 114 of them, AC Man give one of the best performances you'll ever see in a Champions League final. And that's what makes it mad. Yeah. You know, it, you know, people have this idea that, again, we mentioned this in the book, Half time, Rafa changed things. We come flying out the blocks and we got these three goals. And you actually watch it back until we scored the first one. We're getting battered again, yeah, by AC Milan. They, they look like scoring another couple of goals. And then, you know, Stevie gets the, the header and off we go. From a psychology perspective, what I found really interesting is what you say about half time and about coming out at half time, which is that no, you didn't really think you were going to do it. Yeah, no, no. you were fucking three 0 so down. What's interesting to me on that though, right, is because the, the, the narrative idea of giving up or you know, yeah. not giving up, obviously, but you know what I mean, like yeah. And this is the narrative thing again, right? Because it's younger listeners may not be able to understand this, but like Liverpool were not the sort of team that got into Champions League finals at the time. There was a romance about it. It was almost mm. like a, a retro thing. It's like fucking hell, Liverpool are like doing their eighties thing. This is really really great. And I was, I remember watching the game, and at half time. Me and a mate of mine were absolutely shell shocked, and obviously we're football nerds, so we love this Milan side as well. But it's like, oh, but this is this is such a shame because Liverpool were doing so well, yeah. And then a friend of mine texted me, and he's a Spurs fan. Neither of us got a dog in the fight, and he just said Liverpool are still going to win. And I remember that so clearly. (laughs) There was a sense that you you were going to turn it around. Like I think people watching the game. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's what I remember, and that's this, this. It was like the sheer strength of will made you guys win but it's so interesting that we've just 
it's added that to it afterwards. We've created it. Yeah. I think I think the half time is something that gets spoken about more than the game. Yeah. Really. What what happened? What what changed? And you and you speak about what happened and and it's almost one of those games that I, I love listening to what you've just said there, your story. It feels like everybody's got a story about that game, how they watched it, where they went. And it was funny because England, there was no tournament that season. So England had gone away on a tour to, I think, America, play some games. And a lot of the players obviously watched the first half because of the time difference. I think it must have been in, in, in the day. I think Peter Crouch's one. At half time, they go shopping. <laughs> Some of them go out and so this game's finished. Wow. And then they get them phone calls, get back, this game's still happening. <laughs> it's 3 3. Peter Crouch told me that story as well. So it was a, it, that's what I love. Everybody, whether it's you know any football fan, because it's the Champions League final, everybody yeah. watches the Champions League final. So it's not just a Liverpool thing, but but no, it's uh, yeah, the half time was a bit crazy with the uh, because we, we'd already made a substitution in the first half. Rafa Benitez has made another one at half time. So DD man come on and uh, we went to three at the back and that, that was the change. That made a big difference. DD coming on, looking after Kaka, who was unbelievable in that first half. Us going to three at the back because as a back four or so, certainly two centre-backs, we couldn't cope with Crespo and Shevchenko. And uh, it was almost like going back to school in some ways in that we didn't think too much in, in that second half, even though we set up differently. It was a bit like once the first goal went in, it was like that six minutes was like, you know, everyone's just running everywhere and everyone's just doing mad things and I'm running forward with the ball and there's all commotion going on. It's 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 you start playing with your heart and not your head, and then when it goes to three three, it's like oh, we've got something to lose now, mm. and then it's almost the head gets switched back on, and then uh, Asian ambassadors for the next hour, <laughs> <laughs> and we're hanging on for dear life. You've massively cut to the heart of something about being a football fan, I think, there, Jamie, about um, the sense that people, I think, want to mythologise what you were up to in the, at half-time into, I guess, a way that you can understand as just, like, the person on the sofa or the person thinking about it, you know, you sort of want it to be like a, you know, like that, uh, the inches speech at any given Sunday or that that sort of well, that's, that's, uh, moment. Then you can all get behind yeah, it and have some sense of understanding. I would love to go back to the half-time because sometimes when I speak of what I remember, I sometimes think, was it true? You know, you, you, know <laughs> you, you think of things a little bit and then someone else will say something else. Like, Jabril Cissé said something that was just, I know never happened for a fact. He, told, he, he made this story up about Stevie Gerrard sending Rafa Benitez outside and Stevie <laughs> giving this speech. And I'm reading this thinking, I mean, what, what, what? so I don't know if mine's got a little bit of uh, nonsense in it as well, but we, 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 we come in and... Uh, Rafa Benitez, you've got to remember, English wasn't fantastic. He comes in and, and right throughout that season, he was very blunt, but I think it was because he didn't have the, you know, the language. If he wanted to make a change at halftime, he'd just say the, the person's insane name and he'd just say shower. So he just come in, everyone sat down and Traore, shower. That was it. But then Steve Finnan had gone in to see the physio in a little room and uh, the physio came out and said he can't continue, but Steve Finnan thought he could. But I think what the, the, the visio was saying is, well, he can continue, but he won't last the game. So there was a little bit of a problem there. So next thing, Finland's in the shower, Traore's out. We changed the three at the back. And uh, Rafa has, actually has 12 men on a board when he's talking about what we're going to do. Because Jibril Cissé was sat there with his kit off. I don't know who took his, 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 his uh, subtract suit off. He was in a kit. 
So I don't know if Rafa's doing these names. I'm like, names on the board, and he's seen Jabril there in a full kit and written his name on this board. So we actually, when Rafa's saying, well, what system are doing or not, we end up having 12 men on it. Uh, Did that make you feel confident? <laughs> with 12 men, we might have had a chance. We might have won it. Uh, but no, it, was, it, it, it wasn't how maybe people imagine, because Rafa Benitez is not a, a guy for a big speech. That's his thing is changing to three at the back. What's the problem? Let's fix this. That's that's what makes him a special manager. He's not he's not a motivator as such. He's not going to give a Churchillian speech at half time or you talking about any given Sunday, the famous film. Uh with that's used. I think actually football sport teams now use that themselves as motivation at times in team meetings. But no, he, he wasn't that type of guy. So it, it wasn't what maybe people expect or people say, what, what were you saying? Or what was Stevie saying? Like we're, we're all arguing or fighting and, and screaming and shouting at each other. It wasn't like that at all. It was it was very despondent when we first went in because it was you know the biggest game of your life. And you're not just getting beat, you're getting embarrassed. You know, So it was hard to sort of start pointing the finger at other people when we were playing so poorly ourselves. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's funny, isn't it? Like, um... 89, 90, a lot happened. And the 96 as well, when you look at the, the Liverpool 4-3 against Newcastle and obviously that whole story of Keegan. So many amazing football stories are from that season. And then you had Euro 96 at the end of it as well. Yeah. And actually the, the the bits in the book about Euro 96 and that, and the, the 5-1 over Germany in, uh, in Munich are really interesting as well because the tone is a little bit different from how you might expect, isn't it? Yeah, it'd be great to hear a bit more about these. I mean, we got the impression, I think, that... Or in fact, you say it overtly, you know, you playing for England was not the greatest pinnacle of your career, right? It was mm. it was all about club football and particularly in that era. It'd be interesting to get your thoughts on how things are now. But looking at those games, the way they were organised back to front in times in terms of time sequence, you were effectively saying the England team went backwards. Yes. Yeah, that, that was a deliberate thing in terms of where we put the the chapters in the book. I do feel when you think of not just England, but foreign managers I've had, it's really interesting because a lot of the foreign managers I had were 4-4-2 men, were strong on discipline, clean sheets. So that's Gerard Hulier, Rafa Benitez, Sven-Goran Eriksson, Fabio Capello. And the British managers I've I've had in terms of Roy Evans, Brendan Rodgers, Kenny Daglish, 
they wanted to play more football <laughs> than those type of managers. So, and you actually go back to sort of 96 and you go into what Glenn Hoddle was trying to do and Terry Venables. It almost looks like football now. And, you know, you're not quite sure what system Venables is going to play. He's going to play three at the back, but he's not going to have wing backs. He's going to have wingers in those positions. A very, you could imagine Pep Guardiola doing it. And I do feel that we did go backwards there. I do. I think it was a real shame that we lost Venables at that time. Obviously, Hoddle for different reasons. But, you know, we, we don't need to just go abroad. We have got great thinkers in this country. And those at that time were, were certainly two of the best. And, and when you watch those games and look at the systems and, you know, the role of sometimes of Gareth Southgate in one of the games, where I think he was playing holding midfield and his job was to drop back into the back four when, the, you know, something like the Dutch would do. Mm. You know, so I think he was really... Not just ahead of his time, Terry Venom was just a brilliant coach of that England team. Uh, but we went through those games, and you know these are two of the most probably famous games outside of a tournament. You so know. yeah, just to, for the, I mean everyone's obviously going to buy the book and read it immediately, but just in case they're not listening, you already have, haven't they? <laughs> yes, I'm sure <laughs> you're right. It is a book club. Um, just so that everyone knows which ones we're talking about, we're talking about the 2001 uh, FIFA World Cup qualifier. So it's the the England game where we famously beat Germany 5-1 and then after that in the book you talk about the 1996 England 4-1 win against Holland yeah and analysing them really I mean England do not play anywhere uh, near as well as people believe when you look at the score lines I mean the the 5-1 game in Germany England were really poor I'm on the bench were really poor in the first half and should be losing the game and then, obviously, because we're in, I think Germany got a bit more emotional and we, we hit them on the counter-attack with, with, through Michael and Emil Heskey in the second half. But in the first half, we're all over the place, really continually giving the ball away. Uh, Sebastian Deisler, I think it was, is causing us huge problems between the lines. They're making passes, Didi Amand's running the game, firing balls, as I said, between our lines in terms of the 4-4-2 that we always played under Sven. And they, before you know it, you win 5-1. But if you actually watch the game back, you could almost see why when you go to the tournament, Germany get to the final and we don't do anything. You know, even though we've battered them, they didn't have great players at the time, Germany. In that first half, you can see actually the patterns and what they're trying to do, whereas we're just continually giving the ball away. And we're great players. Don't get me wrong, in the book, it's probably Stevie and Scolzi, and they're always looking for this 50, 60-yard pass over the top for Michael Owen. And that was almost the way that team was set up in some ways, you know, playing to his strengths, but... When it comes off, it's great as it did in the second half. But in the first half, you're thinking, if you play like that in a World Cup in heat, you're gonna have a big problem. And that that's that was the the analysis of that game. But the uh, the Dutch game as well, that was interesting watching that back because I didn't re number one, what I would say is when you think of the Dutch and you go through the team, when you actually look at the team on paper, there's a few players you don't really know. Because in your head you're thinking this must be the Ajax team that won the mm. Champions League in 95 or got to the Champions League final in 96. And when you look at the team, I'm not trying to knock the England players any one bit, but it's not what you'd expect on the pitch from the Dutch, to be fair. And there's also a really big chance, I think at 0-0, I think as Camp goes through, and uh, or at 1-0, and I think has a huge bearing. But don't get me wrong, there's, there's a spell in the second half where the goals come, mm. where it's just like, I think a lot of it's direct, actually, when I think back of it now. I think a lot of it is, is a ball up to Schengen, and he flicks it on, Shearer, and a couple of goals like that. Listen, there's no right or wrong way you can... But I think the way it's uh, thought of now is that we out-dutch the Dutch, yeah, if you like, and totally. I don't think that's quite what happened. No, yeah, watching it back, 
that's that's the impression I get as well. Even just from the goals, like they mm. are they are direct. It is re- it's responding to another team collapsing rather yeah. than like forcing them to collapse. Yeah. yeah. So um, I, we've got to ask him about Sven. One of our guys on the ramble is like obsessed with Sven Mjorn Eriksson. In a good way or a bad way. In a in, in both ways. In a slightly odd say, way. In three sixty degree <laughs> way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he for you wasn't. How would you describe the the your thoughts about his management? Uh, I. I there was a mystique about Sven because he was the first foreign manager and he was different to other managers that you, no one really spoke to him too much and he was standoffish. And we got great results when he came in. So it was almost thing, wow, Sven, Chelsea wanted him, Man United wanted him, everyone wanted him. There was like this spell he had over English football. But when you actually look back at it, I think, well, what did I take from Sven really tactically in the game, in the training session? Not a lot, I would say. I was working, don't get at that time with Gerard Houllier and Rafa Benitez they were much bigger influencers as you would expect I'm working with them every day and you were excited about talking to him weren't you because you love to talk about football and you were like yeah, yeah I'm going to learn stuff we're going to have conversations and yeah. that's not how it worked out yeah I mean Sven's big I think lane and really as a young coach was Liverpool in those early 80s I think it, he come to Melbourne to watch them he's a big 4-4-2 man I think he was one of the first guys in, in Sweden to ab- abolish the sweeper system and go with a 4-4-2. So he, he was a revolutionary in his own country and that's where this, his success come from. And and also, this is not me trying to knock him because I'm well aware of the things he achieved in Italy. You know, getting to a European Cup final with Benfica, you know, against that AC Milan team in 1990 against Saki. I think he, if I remember, he went into that game and he lost his two left-backs before the game. So you can imagine how tough that must have been playing against that team. So it wasn't a great thing for him. He goes to Sampdoria. So he's managed at an unbelievably high level with, with top players. I just think, I think, oh, give me a bit of information. Give me a little bit more. Uh, but it, it, his thing was about sort of being cool, calm, not getting too emotional as an England manager, really. But I do think we underachieved because I think we had great players. I do think we had great players uh, at that time. And sometimes you've got to drop some of your great players in order to yes, that, actually that was the have thing. a football team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. And I mean, thinking about the... Because this was published last year, wasn't it? So thinking about the Euros, um, are you is it a shame that you didn't have one of those to include in the book? Or would it not? Would none of those games have made <clears throat> well, it? You know what? You've just given me an idea. Greatest so Games Part 2? Yeah, no, about uh, games. The, 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 the paperback. <laughs> and you said to me earlier, I don't think I actually answered it, you said that it was the game we wanted to put in that we didn't do. Now, I think, if I'm rightly, I think all of those games have got an, an English team or a, an English team plus a foreign team. I wanted to do something on the famous AC Milan of uh, Saki and maybe maybe not even Saki, maybe it's been the Barcelona game in 94 with Capello, but I just thought how difficult it would be getting trying to get hold of people to talk about you're talking about two foreign teams but I think what would be really interesting to analyse would be the England the final yes. against Italy because uh, that could be that could be the, well the paperback's out we might bring a second paperback out because well, I have it as like a bonus, bonus yeah content. we'll have a bonus we might have a bonus uh, one looking back at it because there was a lot of criticism for Gareth Southgate and uh, everyone always says in, in football why didn't we have a go second half but sometimes as a manager a game is going on and it's difficult to change Right, Italy put us under pressure. What does Garatowski shout on? Lads, have a go with them. You know, it's a little bit more complicated than that. (laughs) You know, how useful. Thank you, Now We don't have amazing central midfield players in terms of technically to run a game. And also, I keep thinking back, and I still argue this. If you're an England manager thinking before that game, 
you want to take the lead. And the reason you want to take the lead in that game is because you want Chiellini and Benucci on the halfway line. That's where you want them. Mm. It's exactly where you want them. And that's where England had them, really. Now, you're watching the game thinking, oh, Italy. It, there was this feeling watching, wasn't it? Italy going to score shortly. You can feel it coming. And I get that. And could Gareth change something or, or made a tactical change? But I don't think any change then was all of a sudden going to shift Italy back to the uh, edge of their box and England were going to be halfway lane dictate and play. Yeah. Italy were always going to push on because of the situation they were in. But I had Dominic Calvert-Lewin on in Monday Night Football and I mentioned this and I know he couldn't say it, but I'd been quite critical of Harry Kane right throughout the tournament. I, I thought he didn't look anywhere near his best or he looked sluggish. He's taken that into this season. I love him as a player. I think he's an amazing, great player. But that was the change he had to make yeah. after 10 minutes, 15 minutes of that second half and he didn't want to bring Kane off. Even though he'd been brave enough to bring him off through the tournament, maybe he was thinking of penalties or to bring your captain off if he's supposed to lift the throw. I don't know. But we didn't have anyone with pace against the centre-backs. I think he brought Saka on. And if you remember, there was one where Chiellini pulled him back. But that was in a wide area. I just thought if someone, a Calvert, just, just make him runs in behind. Because every time Harry Kane went short for the ball, that was just playing into Benucci and Chiellini's hands. And every time the ball went short, they just went bang. Took mm. the ball off them and they were back on us. They were back so on us. So shit, it's almost to you. It's, I mean, obviously this is breaking it down to massive basics, but if Harry Kane had been a bit more on form, that I don't think could was, have been the difference. I don't think it was so much on form. I just think Harry Kane has become a player now where he has to come to feet because he can't run in behind. So I don't think he could have ran in behind as such, if you understand what I mean. So he's all, his, his game is now is coming short for the ball holding the ball and I just think that was playing into their hands they were aggressive they were getting in front of them they were winning the ball and every time England cleared it now don't get me wrong a lot of the passes into them were not great and a lot of them were clearances not passes I'm well aware of that and, and sometimes that can happen through nerves what, what's happening no one wants to make that pass that gets cut out and you can see the goal so that comes into the game as well so you know it, I don't like it always being put on the manager sometimes something's happening and you've got to make the best of it as I said before Right, we need to make sure we keep a clean sheet. How can we keep a clean sheet and we win the tournament? It's not about go and get the second goal because the nerves are set in the crowd, the tension. Harry Kane's coming short, we can't get out. Mm. But I do think the one thing we could have done was 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 tested those, certainly with pace-wise, over the top. Also, it's the bloody Euros final, guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is not... This is not something you can just solve from your sitting room. For me, the sadness was I was, I was there right on the... Where, where we took the penalties, I was kind of parallel mm. with that on the ground level. And I was just absolutely convinced, obsessed with this idea that if we could get to penalties, we'd win on penalties. Mm. Just, I think possibly because I, I felt like we'd banish the, the I, whole I thing. I don't think we had any chance on penalties. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, no, no I mean, not because of the I just thought they keeper. Yeah. I thought he'd been... But as it turned out, Pickford was the one, yeah, right? Yeah, but he just, he'd look so... And I, I, I watched him last night save a penalty in the... Uh, in the Champions League in the, in Leipzig so and, and Leipzig took another penalty and they scored actually he got a 50% record last night but that was just my feeling that I just looked at the size of him in that goal not so much the penalty takers of us because we, we've been successful a little bit under Southgate but mm. he's, he's just a man mountain isn't he done a rumour I, I thought we would have had a chance on penalties because Italy had won a penalty shootout to get there it's quite rare to do two in a row I've seen these stats but that just turned Correct. out to be and had been. <laughs> 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 yeah. no one wins two penalty shootouts in a row in, the, in this tournament <laughs> yeah, I saw all that oh god it's, sorry it's actually still quite hard to talk about so do you think you would do you think you would then slot this one in because it seems like it just give me an idea I'll, I'll give you some mention I'll try and give you some mention listen because <laughs> the point is be as well with Gareth Southgate specifically it would you know you already have that 
nice arc of the two England games and then you've got the arc of him obviously being manager and his thing was he said we needed Winston Churchill we got Ian Duncan Smith yeah well I actually spoke to Gareth Southgate on the phone about this book and wanted him to talk about Teddy Venables and Euro 96 and his role in that but at the time because of the the pandemic um Gareth said the FA didn't want him to speak about anything else other than stuff to do with the... Basically, they had to keep their sponsors happy because everyone was cutting money and taking money away and losing money. And it was a bit like, if the England manager's speaking, it has to be for one of our sponsors to keep them on, to keep them mm. involved. So that was... Uh, so we did try and get Gareth. <laughs> and maybe he'll be freer now. Yeah. Now the pandemic is over. As you say, <laughs> it's hard for people to hide from you. Um, one thing I was really interested to ask you about, again, going back to you as a player specifically, is this idea of panic. You talk about panic in a number of these games where teams just kind of start to crumble and they get chipped away mm. at. And you you see it as a fan, don't you? You, you see, see it. the tide well, turning the game. It's hard to know because you're always projecting. Like yeah. I always try it's so hard to try and aim off, but I always try and like control from what I'm what I want to see with what's going on on the pitch. And then that's why you watch it back as well, because then you mm. can like distract yourself from your original emotions. But in terms of the like that sense of panic is so interesting because I think what you say is that it, in some ways it can get worse as you get more experienced because you know the outcome, the potential real negatives, whereas you'd think instinctively that it should get easier over time as you're more experienced. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, you can look at it both you know, different ways. I just think when you can't actually control what's going on in a football pitch, you can almost feel it happening. And I think when you're older, you've almost you've been there before and you can feel it happening. I think that goes back to the England game. You just... Even though, if you think about Italy's goals from a corner, mm. you know a bit of a bit of luck and something happens, but it's almost like everyone could. Everyone was just watching that game, think something's going to happen. Something's going to happen, and I, and I think sometimes you you can't con- control it in some ways. And I, I always think about the AC Milan game in Istanbul, and it's almost like it had to go three three for almost AC Milan to go. Okay, it's three. Th- you've got your three three now. You know what I mean? Let's get back to normal. It's almost this yeah. thing's happening, and you can sort of see it happening. I think we felt it. As soon as we got the second one, I always say, I knew we were getting the third. I knew that was coming quickly. It was just, they probably knew it. It was almost like, all right, get your third and let's get on with the, the proper game. You know, that thing where you can you can just feel it and sense it in the ground, can't you? And feel that tension. Yeah. All questions I reckon you can uh, <laughs> yeah. continue to ask in your many chats with the great and the good of, of football. Jamie, and f- we could, I could talk, we could talk to you for another four hours or something and it would be mm. still fun but I I've got I, to get on the 1207 <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we, we better get you out of here then thank you so much for coming in to talk to us we've really really enjoyed it give Jamie's podcast a listen it's called The Greatest Game pick that up wherever you get your podcasts and buy the book it's The Greatest Games you can get this at all good bookshops and it's fantastic basically we've really enjoyed it um, and as for you guys get in touch with what you'd like us to read next I'm on at KBL Mason Jim I am at Jim Campbell TFR or you can tweet us at Football Ramble and we'll catch you next time for Book Club thank Brilliant. you Jamie Carragher thank you thanks to the Football Ramble for having me thank no you worries. Football Ramble Presents is a Stack Production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.